So welcome again to Center Church. My name is Josh Miller. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, if you're new, welcome. One of the things that I've learned in my four or five years here in Charlottesville is that July is a time of transition here, right? Maybe that's true of you. Maybe you moved here to start a new grad program or to start a new job, or you said enough is enough. DC traffic is ridiculous. I'm moving, right? Like I've met some of you all. And you're like, oh, it takes me three minutes to get everywhere here. And, that, and that's awesome. So man, we're, we're glad that you're here. Um, here's the thing. I, it always rains when I preach, okay? It always does. <laughs> Every time. It's like, if it ever goes through a drought, have me preach, it'll change. Um, here's the thing. We, we want to get to know you. We want to help you get connected here at our church because the reality is that every kind of fork in the road of our life is an opportunity for spiritual growth, but it's also an opportunity to wander in your faith. And maybe you've experienced that. You went to college. Maybe your first year was awesome. You grew a lot. Your relationship with Jesus, maybe it wasn't so great. Right? You moved to a new town. Maybe it went great. Maybe it wasn't so great. You, you, know, you got married. Maybe it was great. Maybe it wasn't so great. Um, we want to help your transition be great, and so that's why I want to tell you about The Weekender, okay? The Weekender is the one-stop shop for connection around here. It's an event we do every six to eight weeks, man, that helps you, man, have your questions answered. It helps you find meaningful community. It helps you find ways to serve and to make a difference here at our church. It's, it's really fun. It's casual. It's a Friday night dinner. It's a Sunday afternoon session where, man, you get to interact with our leaders. You get to ask questions, and you get to figure out what's the right next step for you, because the truth is we all have different stories, and so, man, you're right next step is not going to be the right, my next right step. We just want to find your next step and help you take it, okay? Our next weekender is coming up August 5th and August 7th. So it's a Friday night and it's a Sunday. And I just want to lovingly encourage you that if you haven't taken part in that, please do. Okay, maybe you're brand new, you've been here two weeks, one week, man, come out, you're not signing anything in blood, like you're just, you're learning about the church and we want to get to know you. So that's you, man, come out. If you've been around for a while, but you've sort of been on the periphery, you've, you've kind of been more like a spectator, man, I want to invite you to come out as well because we want to help you, man, build meaningful relationships. We want to help you figure out your spiritual gifts to serve here. We want you to be a part of what God is doing here at our church. And man, let you in on kind of the, uh, the behind the curtain, as it, as it were, of our leadership team. We think God is going to do some pretty amazing things this fall. Okay, we really do think that. If you're new, you may not know this, but we're in the midst of, as, of a transition as a church. So for the last two years, we've been meeting here at night at Cross Life, and we've loved it. We've grown and seen God's favor, but man, in his kindness, God has opened up a 10,000 square foot building on 1.65 acres at the corner of Westfield Road and 29 North, okay? So it's about a mile from here, and because of your generosity, we now own that building, and we are actively in the process of renovating that building. Right now, that is happening. So here's what that means. Yeah, more clapping. I love clapping. I love it. Susan will always start a clap for me. Be like Susan. Um, here's, here's what's exciting. Lord willing, we are going to move into that facility, brand new church facility, and we're going to move to morning worship times this fall. Okay? And, and it's never been about the building, okay? It's, it's not about the building, but it's about what the building facilitates. The building facilitates deeper discipleship, wider mission, okay? The building discipleships, or the, the building facilitates deeper and richer ministries, and that's what we're excited about. And we think God's going to do some amazing things. I want you to get in on the ground level of that, okay? I want you to get to be a part of what God is doing. And so the Weekender is how you do that. The Weekender is how you get to know people. It's how you discover your spiritual gifts, and it's how you kind of get on the ground floor of what God is doing, okay? So August 5th and 7th, I'd really love for you to join us. It's easy to sign up. On the back of your Connect card is the Weekender card. All you have to do, fill that out at some point during the service, drop it in the offering bucket later, and then we will do the rest, okay? So I just want to pray for, man, all the people in, in transition uh, here. I know it's a lot to get settled, and then we're going to jump in to Mark, okay? So let's pray. God, I thank you that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that you are the God of Charlottesville, just like you're the God of D.C., you're the God of uh, the college years, and the young adult years, and the married years, and the retired years, that you are the God of every season. 
God, I pray that you'd remind us of that. As we transition as a church, as many people here transition into new season of life, God, would you give us grace to trust you? And would you speak to us, Lord, as we look at your word, Mark 10, would you change us uh, by the truth that is found here that we might become more like Christ? We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible, you can meet me in Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 32. Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 32. Uh, We've been just walking verse by verse through the gospel of Mark, and the reason for that is that we believe that the Bible is the word of God. So we don't believe that the Bible is primarily a book about God, but that the Bible is a book from God. And so you might say, if you want a word from God, you have to go to the word of God. So that's what we try to do. Every single Sunday, we just kind of walk through different sections and ask, what does this mean? And and how does this apply to our lives? And how does this change me? And how does this this call me to look to Christ? And so that's what we've been doing. We've been walking through the gospel of Mark. And today, we come to verses 32 through 45 of chapter 10, which many scholars say is the most important section in the entire gospel of Mark. And within that section, most scholars will tell you verse 45 is the most important verse in the entire gospel. So here's what this means. If this is your very first Sunday, you picked a great Sunday, right? It's like you came for the most important verse in the gospel of Mark. And you might ask the question, why? Why one verse is so important in chapter 10? And the reason is this. Uh, Before this point, Jesus has told us that he's going to die. But it's at this point that he tells us why he's going to die. You see, a lot of people know that Jesus died on a cross, Fewer people understand why Jesus died on the cross. You see, until this point in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has told us, hey, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be lifted up, I'm going to be put to death by the rulers. But he tells us why that's going to happen in verse 45. He says, I'm going to die as a ransom for many. I'm going to die in the place of many. You see, verse 45 of chapter 10 explains how Jesus accomplished my salvation. If you're a Christian here today, it it explains how Jesus accomplished your salvation. And if you're here and you're you're not a Christian today, it tells us why you can be saved. Because of verse 45, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter how long it's been, you can be saved through repentance and faith because of what Jesus did, because of verse 45 of chapter 10. It is a very, very important verse. I haven't preached in two weeks. I'm very excited about it. So it'll be the shortest 75-minute sermon you've ever heard. I'm just kidding. We won't do that. All right, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to walk through the verses, and then I'm going to kind of really land in on that core truth in verse 45. Okay, so let's start in verse 32. Uh, It says this, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. So Jerusalem is built at a high elevation, so no matter what direction you were walking from, you were always walking up to Jerusalem, okay? So it doesn't matter if you're coming from the north, south, east, west, you're always walking up to Jerusalem. So the question is why? Why why are Jesus and his disciples now walking towards Jerusalem? They were up in the north, now they're coming to the south. And on the surface, the answer is Passover week, okay? So Passover week was a time every year where faithful uh, Jews from all over the country would travel to Jerusalem to remember their divine deliverance from Egypt, okay? So if you guys were with us in the Exodus series, you know that, man, that God delivered the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt into freedom. And the way that he did that was that he provided a Passover lamb. And the lamb died in place of the people so that the people could go free. And so every year, hundreds and hundreds of Jews would go to Jerusalem to remember that. So there would have been multitudes of people on the road. So think like Thanksgiving week traffic, okay? Like that, that is what we're dealing with here. And so on the surface, that is why Jesus and his disciples are headed to Jerusalem. But underneath the surface, Jesus and his disciples are not headed there for Passover week. They're actually headed there for Passion Week. Because Jesus is going to come into this Passover and he's going to offer his life as the once for all ultimate Passover lamb whose death will secure the salvation of his people. And so that is why they are going up to Jerusalem. And you'll notice that it says Jesus is walking ahead of them. Jesus is walking ahead of them. That might seem like a throwaway phrase, but it's actually pretty important. 
You see, Jesus was always walking ahead of his disciples. And Jesus is always walking ahead of you. Jesus isn't behind you pointing at things saying, hey, you should really do that. You should really care about the poor. And you should really serve others. And you should, you should really give generously. And you, and you should really do this and that. No, he, he's not kind of a, a Monday morning quarterback, as it were. Jesus is in front leading. He's calling us to follow in his footsteps. So if that's the case, if Jesus is always in front leading, then I guess the question becomes, am I following? Am I following in the footsteps of Jesus in, in my marriage and in, in my parenting and at work and in my neighborhood and how I feel about the poor and how I think about my money and my body and my sexuality? Like, am I following Jesus's lead? And I'll confess to you today that I've often found that in my heart, I shift from following Jesus to wanting to lead Jesus. And, and I kind of say, Jesus, here's my agenda. I'd like for you to bless my agenda. But to be a disciple of Jesus is to surrender my agenda to his agenda. You see, to be a disciple of Jesus is not to lead Jesus, it's to follow Jesus. And so that's what's going on. The disciples probably didn't want to go to Jerusalem, and I'll explain why. But that's where Jesus is going, and so that's where they are going. Verse 32. Now this is what it says next. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. That's a little bit of a strange statement, right? I mean, what are they amazed and afraid of? He's walking, right? Is he, like, walking really fast? Right? Did he get 27,000 steps today? You know, it's like new record, right? He's killing it with his, you step people know what I'm talking about, right? Like, is that, no, I don't think, I don't think that's what it is. I, I think this is a culminating statement of all that Jesus has done and said. And if we zoom out a little bit in the gospel of Mark, it is pretty startling to consider the last three or four chapters. So now here's a quick survey. In chapter seven, Jesus is eating dinner in a, a town kind of outside of Jerusalem, and a woman interrupts his dinner party. She's a marginalized woman. She comes and says, Jesus, my daughter is possessed by a demon on the other side of town. No one can help her. Will you help her? Jesus has compassion on this woman, and this is remarkable. Without leaving the dinner table, he speaks a word. On the other side of town, a demon is cast out of her daughter. Okay, so that's, that's, that's the beginning of chapter 7. He comes back to Jerusalem, and there's this multitude of people that are listening to him teach. They don't have any food, and so Jesus miraculously multiplies bread and feeds 4,000 people. After he feeds this massive crowd, he's, uh, he encounters a man who's blind. He takes the man aside. He spits in his eyes and causes the man to see. Right after that, he hikes up on a mountain with Peter, James, and John, and he is supernaturally transfigured before them. It says that his clothes shone like lightning. I'm not sure what that means, but it's really bright. And, and Moses and Elijah appeared and were paying homage to him. And then the voice of God the Father boomed out over the mountain and said, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And then he comes down the mountain. And there's this, there's this huge crowd of Pharisees and scribes that are arguing with him. And he just rebukes them. You see, not only had Jesus' supernatural activity been increasing, but man, his teaching had been becoming more and more electric and polarizing. He taught with an insight and an authority that no one had ever experienced before, and he openly and regularly rebuked the religious authorities. I mean, there is, a, there is an aura around this man. There is something happening in his following that, that is really, really unique, and now here's what's, here's what's happening. He is walking towards Jerusalem. Now, we don't understand that because, you know, we're not first century Jews, but here's the thing. Jerusalem was the seat of economic, political, religious, and social power in, in that day. Jesus had a lot of very strong, very angry enemies in Jerusalem. It was a veritable hornet's nest, and that's where Jesus is going. And I love what Luke says in his gospel. It says that Jesus set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. 
I read that and thought, that sounds cool. And then I thought, I don't know what that means. You know, like, what, what in the world does that mean? So I looked it up. I'm like, what, is, what, what does that mean? Well, apparently flint is very, very hard. Okay, so if you take a piece of steel and you hit a thing of flint with a piece of steel, the flint will not break. It will spark. That's how hard it is. The metal will give way before the flint gives way. So here's what this tells us. Man, after doing all of this, Jesus set his face with unbelievable resolve and commitment to walk into the very hornet's nest of Jerusalem. He's taking all that he's been doing it, doing, and he's taking it to the very center of power during the most important religious ceremony in the calendar year. Like, everything is building, okay? This is a big deal, and the disciples are amazed, and they're a little bit afraid. So here's what we find in the scriptures. The people who followed Jesus the closest were a combination of amazement and fear in his presence. Is that true of you? Is that true of me? I mean, when was the last time that Jesus amazed you? When was the last time that you felt like a healthy, godly fear and reverence of him? And if you're anything like me, I, I just find that I'm so familiar with the stories of Scripture that it's easy to kind of sanitize Jesus and domesticate him and to never really be amazed by him or, and honestly, to never really be afraid of him. And yet, that's actually not the biblical Jesus. People felt very strongly about Jesus in his ministry, but they never felt bored of Jesus. Some people loved him. Other people hated him. No one was bored by him. But I'm afraid that sometimes we live in this middle ground where we, we don't love Jesus, we don't hate Jesus, we're just sort of bored of Jesus. We sort of ho-hum, come to church every, you know, a couple times a month because we feel like we should, and we're just sort of apathetic in our faith. And I think the reason for that, I, th- I know the reason in my life is that I've lost my awe and my fear of Christ. But I love the words of British theologian N.T. Wright. This is what he said. How can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human? That fire has become flesh, that life itself became life and walked in our midst. Christianity either means that or it means nothing. It is either the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality of the world, or it is a sham, a nonsense, a bit of deceitful play acting. You see, when we encounter the authentic Jesus of the scriptures, he will amaze you and he will frighten you. Because in Christ, the hurricane has become human. He does not fit our categories and he has, he has no issue breaking our boxes. He is very much like what C.S. Lewis famously said about Aslan the lion in the Chronicles of Narnia. Jesus is not safe, but he is good. And that is what his disciples understood as they followed him to Jerusalem. It was not safe to follow Jesus. It was not safe to go to Jerusalem, but it was good. Verse 32, and taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, the religious leaders, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. So the Gentiles would have been the Romans. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. So Jesus takes his 12 disciples aside privately, and he tells them once again that he's going to die. And the reason that he does that is he wants them to know, he wants his friends to know what they're walking into. Now, this is the third time that Jesus has predicted his death in the Gospel of Mark, but we get more details here than we've ever gotten before. So a couple of new details. Number one, he would die in Jerusalem, the first time that we learned that. Number two, that he would be handed over to the Gentiles in his death. Number three, that he would be condemned as a lawbreaker. So he wouldn't just kind of die, you know, because of vigilante justice, but he would be tried, he would be found wanting, he would be found a lawbreaker and condemned for it. And then number four, that he would be humiliated in his death. 
And I just want to point out three quick things from this by way of application for us today, from this prediction. Here's the first one. Number one, Jesus chose to die. Jesus chose to die. I mean, you see that in the prediction. He's saying, this is what's going to happen, and that's exactly where I'm walking. Jesus chose to die. He wasn't a, a naive victim of Jewish politics or Roman brutality. In fact, in John chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus said of himself, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down willingly of my own accord. And Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that the reason Jesus did that was for the joy set before him. You might ask the question, what, what, what was that joy? And the answer is your salvation. That Jesus walked into the hornet's nest of Jerusalem because you were worth it. That Jesus chose to endure the cross because he wanted to secure your forgiveness and he wanted to secure your place in the family of God. You see, the cross wasn't a human tragedy, it was a divine act of love. Here's the second observation. Number two, Jesus was rejected by both the religious and the rebellious. By both the religious and the rebellious. Most people think that, that there's one way to reject God, right? Rebellion. What, is, what does rebellion look like? Well, rebellion looks like, I don't believe in God. I reject his word. Man, I'm going to do what I want with who I want when I want. Okay, fair enough. That's one way to reject God, right? Rebellion. That's kind of the classic sense that, that we think of. But what we find in this text that Jesus was rejected by both the Romans through rebellion, but he was also rejected by the Jews through religion. You see that? It was the scribes and the chief priests who handed him over to the Gentiles. The scribes and the chief priests were very, very religious. You see, I can reject God through re rebellion. I can also reject God through religion. So what does that look like? Well, religion looks like this. Man, I, I want God to bless me, and I want God to protect me from suffering. And so what, what I'll do is I'll say my prayers. I'll go to church. I'll live a fairly moral life, and, and then I expect God to kind of do his part. So I don't really find God beautiful. I find him useful, which is why if God doesn't hold up his end of the deal, if God doesn't bless me or if God doesn't protect me from suffering, what happens? I get angry. I get bitter. I stop going to church. One of the clearest signs that I'm operating from a religious perspective is when my life is hard and I get mad at God. Because what that does is it, is it reveals in my heart that I've been in this, I've been in this as a contract. That God, I'm going to do religious things, things that you like, and in response, as payment, you need to bless me. Right? That was the Jews. The Jews were very religious. They liked to keep all the rules, but they didn't want to surrender to Jesus. They didn't want a, a Lord and Savior. They didn't want someone telling them how to live or telling them what to do or telling them that they, that they had to change. They, they just kind of wanted to keep things at a distance, and so when Jesus refused to stop saying those things, man, they, they crucified him. So what we see in this text is that back then, Jesus was rejected by both the, the religious and the rebellious, and we can, we can actually reject Jesus in both those ways today. Here's the third thing that we see. Um, Jesus was confident of his ultimate vindication. You see that? He said, after three days, I will rise. You see, Jesus walked into the hornet's nest because he had an abiding faith that in the end, his father would vindicate him. He had an abiding faith that in the end, he would be triumphant. And just by way of application, if you're going to follow Jesus, you need that same confidence. Because if you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to walk into some hornet's nest. Like if you're going to follow Jesus and submit to his word at work and in your marriage and with your kids and with your money and with your sexuality and on and on and on and on, like you're going to face some challenges. You're going to face some opposition. At the very least, you're going to be misunderstood. And in those moments, what you need is faith that in the end, you will be vindicated. That in the end, resurrection life is on the other side of picking up your cross. And we need to believe that same thing, just like Jesus did. 
So Jesus predicts his death. He, he tells his disciples, this is what's going to happen. It's very solemn. It's very grave. It's very serious. And what happens next is unbelievable. I mean, it really is. Like, don't water down what happens. It's pretty ridiculous. Verse 35. And James and John, two of the inner circle, so Peter, James, and John, you've heard of these guys, like John wrote a gospel. The sons of Zebedee came up to him and did not say, I'm so sorry, can we pray for you? Can we grieve with you? This is what they said. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Look, if you're a parent, you never agree to that, right? Like, you're just like, no, like, you're setting me up for something. This is what, they don't come with empathy, they don't, it's just unbelievable. Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. Yeah, yeah, you're going to die, great, we're thinking about us. And he said to them, this is very classic Jesus, well, what do, you, what do you want me to do for you? You know, like any parent knows that's how you answer that question. What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. So the right hand position, the left hand position of the king were the two highest positions of honor, authority, and power in a kingdom. That's what they want. That's what they're thinking about. And Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? And they said to him, very foolishly, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those, it is for, those for whom it has been prepared. So one of the reasons among many that I believe that the Bible is the word of God, that it wasn't just kind of like made up by the disciples, is because the disciples look so stupid in it. Right? Like, if I'm writing that, I'm excluding that part. You know, like, I'm like, oh, yeah, let's not, let's not bring that back up again. But the, the Bible is just, like, so honest about what these guys are thinking about. And it's unbelievable. I mean, Jesus is talking about how he's going to die. He's going to be humiliated. He's going to be handed over. He's going to die for the sins of the world. He's thinking about the salvation of other people, and James and John are thinking about themselves. They make, like, a classic power play, like office politics, you know, like, and they pull Jesus aside, and they're like, hey, Jesus, like, we want you to do for us whatever we Whatever we ask you. He's like, well, no, tell me what you want, right? And then they're like, they're, they're jockeying for position. And right after Jesus talked about the cross. And you read this and, and you think, okay, number one, this is totally unacceptable. And it is. It's totally unacceptable. And it's kind of unbelievable, isn't it? You're like, no way. Like, no way would anybody ever do that. And I was thinking about that. And then I was really convicted. I was like, dang it, I do that like every Sunday. It's like I come here and I sing about the cross. And I get up here and I preach about the cross. But like, how quickly am I thinking about me? And I'm like, man, did people like the sermon? Like, do they think like I'm insightful and funny? You know, like, how was attendance today? Is the church growing? Is it, what is that? I'm just thinking about me and I'm thinking about my glory. It's like I, I'm preaching the cross. I'm talking about the atoning work of Christ. And then I'm so quickly, just like James and John. You see, I'm a lot like James and John. I am following Jesus, but to be honest with you, I often have mixed motives. And I wonder if you could relate with that. Like, have you ever found yourself in church comparing yourself with other people in church? Right? Have, have you ever had a hard time when one of your friends, man, is, is like better looking than you or, or has a better job or, man, has, has better gifts right, than you do? Have you ever been really frustrated when someone else was appreciated and praised and you weren't? If so, man, you, you can kind of relate with James and John. James and John are like in the presence of Christ and they're talking about the cross and yet they're immediately talking about themselves and kind of their position and what people think about them. And, and Jesus responds to them, and he says, guys, you actually don't even know what, you don't even know what you're asking. Um, and he starts talking about, like, my baptism and my cup and all these things. What, what is all that about? Well, um, cup was a symbol all throughout the Old Testament of God's wrath. You can see that in Isaiah 51, 17, Psalm 75, 8, if you're interested. So Jesus came for that cup. And the, the idea of the image in the Old Testament is that each of us has a cup. 
and your name's on it. And, man, every time I rebel against God good, God's good and holy law, every time I act wickedly, every time I turn a blind eye to the poor, every time I leverage my power and abilities to, to trample on others, man, man, a drop of God's wrath goes into my cup. And, and God, God puts the exact amount of wrath as is appropriate for me in my cup. He doesn't put less. He doesn't put more. It is perfect justice. And every one of us has a cup. That's what the Old Testament says. We each have a cup. You have a cup. I have a cup with our names on it. And at the end of our days... That cup of wrath is poured out over us, and it's just. It is perfectly just. It's not more than you deserve. It's not less than you deserve. It is perfect justice. And Jesus said, I came to drink your cup. That's what Jesus came to do. He said, on the cross, I was crucified for your sin, not for mine. You see, Jesus' cup is totally empty. And so what Jesus came to do is drink your cup and offer you his cup. And what it means to be a Christian is you make that trade. And you say, Jesus, I'd like you to take my cup. I can't drain my cup. I'd like to take your cup. And that, that's what it means, functionally, to become a Christian, is you trade cups with Jesus. So Jesus says, that's what I came to do. And then he starts talking about baptism. The word baptism in the Old Testament um, is actually a very negative word. It, it, it means to be submerged unto death, right? to be drowned, to be overwhelmed, to be engulfed with suffering. And Jesus said, I, I've come to be engulfed with suffering. I've come to be, to be, to be baptized into suffering, to be baptized into death so that your baptism can be a baptism of life you see because jesus was baptized into death i can be and you can be and we can all be baptized into life so that's why when we baptize people here we cheer because it's no longer a symbol of death it's a symbol of life through death the death of christ so jesus says hey um guys you really don't know what you're saying you can't do that you can't drink anybody else's cup you can't endure you know my baptism but then he pivots and he says but you will kind of experience in your own way what, what does he mean by that well james and john both would suffer so James was the very first martyr of the church. So Acts chapter 12, he was beheaded for his faith. John uh, was persecuted. He was exiled. Um, but, but the difference is that Jesus suffered to secure the salvation of God. James and John would suffer to proclaim the salvation of God. You see, we are not called to suffer to secure God's salvation, but we all are called at times to suffer to proclaim salvation. If, if you're going to go to the Middle East and you're going to share your faith, like, you're going to endure a baptism of suffering. And, I mean, even if you're going to go into your family or, or into your, you know, workplace or you're going to try to, you know, disciple your kids, you're going to suffer some. Right? Like, it's just, it's just going to happen. And so James and John did, in their own way, suffer this, but it was a very different way. And they, they just honestly don't really know what they're saying. They're like, no, no, we can do what you, what you can do, Jesus. And he's like, we can't, but it's okay. Kind of like pats them on the head, Okay. So James and John make this power play. Jesus is like, look, it's not up to me who's going to sit next to me at my right and my left. That's up to the Father. Well, and, and then what happens is exactly what you would think would happen. Verse 41. And when the ten heard it, so the other guys, they began to be indignant at James and John. Well, of course they are indignant at James and John because they're just as conceited as James and John are. Right? C.S. Lewis once said, nothing bothers a proud person like another proud person. Right? Um, I was in this group of young pastors at my last church, and our lead pastor would spend time with us, like investing in us, helping us grow, you know. And there was this definite vibe of competition in that group, you know. And so we were all trying to, like, you know, get, get in with the, the lead guy. And there's this one other guy in the group, young pastor, that drove me crazy. I just felt like he was always promoting himself. Like, he was always making these subtle comments about how great his ministry was going, you know, the whole thing. It drove me crazy. I was like, why did that drive me crazy? And I was like, because if he's promoting himself, I can't promote myself. You know, like, I was mad because he was doing the very thing that I wanted to do. Well, that's what's going on uh, with the 12 disciples. The other 10, are, they're not mad. Like, they're mad because James and John beat them to the punch. I mean, they were all thinking about it. They were all thinking about themselves. And as a result, division and infighting developed within the church. 
And just as an aside, it doesn't matter how great your pastor is. It doesn't matter how great your, your worship team is. It doesn't matter what kind of facility you have. Man, if the people in a church are focused on themselves and their glory, you will have division and infight. You just, you just can't avoid it, right? It doesn't matter because it's like eventually if I'm all about me and you're all about you, that's, that's going to clash, right? So how do you deal with division and infighting in the church? Well, I think it's really helpful how Jesus deals with it because notice what he doesn't do. Jesus doesn't, be, it does, Jesus doesn't go, guys, come on, I love you all the same. You're all snowflakes, right? Like he doesn't, he doesn't say that. What he does is he redirects their focus off of themselves and onto his kingdom and his example. Verse 42, and Jesus called them to him, okay, guys, come on, and said, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, that is people who don't know God, the Gentiles, lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Jesus said the world does leadership top down. So think like a pyramid. Those with influence, status, and authority are on the top and, and they lord it over everyone below them. And some people do this overtly and we call them jerks, right? Right? Most people do this subvertly, and we call them ourselves, right? Like, we, we, just, we, just find, <laughs> we just find ways to, you know, whether it's the brand of clothing I have on or the car I drive or the, the neighborhood I live in or the kind of vacation I take. I mean, our world is full of status symbols, right? This is kind of how our, our world operates, which, which is why, you know, usually the distinguished research professor isn't teaching the general ed intro course to first years, Right? Like the sought-after surgeon isn't usually working the night shift, right? Um, you know, I don't know, the, the professional athlete is not usually coaching the Little League baseball team. The VP of sales doesn't usually sit in a cubicle, right? Like, man, usually all of, you know, the men and women with power and authority in, in our world kind of are at the top of the pyramid, and they have privileges that the rest of us don't have. And kind of the way it works in our world is the more power you have, the more people serve you, Right? You might have a whole staff. You might have multiple administrative assistants, right? Just people that exist to serve you. We've all seen this. Well, Jesus said, hey, that, that's how the world does it. That's how they did it then. It's how the world does it now. He said, I want you to turn that upside down. Take your pyramid and flip it. He says, in my kingdom, great people don't sit on top of lesser people. In my kingdom, great people bear lesser people on their backs. So flip it upside down. So if, you're the, if you want to be the greatest, if you want to be the top of the pyramid, I want you to bear everybody else on your back. And I, and I want you to give up seeking your own interests, and I want you to use all your influence and your power and your gifts and your ability meant to bless and to serve others. So if you want to be great in my kingdom, just stop thinking about yourself. So stop promoting yourself at work. Don't worry about getting credit for things, right? Don't worry about being recognized or appreciated. Become a 1044 kind of person in your, in your marriage, Right? In your family, in your church, at work. And just, just be radically others-oriented. Just think about other people. And, and truthfully and honestly, if you do, it will change things. I mean, it'll change your marriage. I can't tell you how many couples I sit down with, and they're fighting, and they think they have all these complex problems. And they don't. They have one problem, and it's called me. It's like, I just want to do what I want to do. And it's like, look, guys, it doesn't matter how many books you read on communication if you're both selfish. Like, it's just, it just doesn't. It's like, I know all the right answers when I'm being selfish. I'm just still being selfish, right? So if you'll just adopt a 1044 posture, it'll change your marriage. Um, it'll change how your family feels. Like your kids will love you. Your kids will love being around you because they'll just be like, man, dad or mom just serves us. 
and they use their authority and their power to help us grow. Like, man, I want to be around them. When I grow up one day, I want to come back and visit mom and dad. They're not going to have to force me to do it. I want to be around them. It can even change your office. Like, it can change the culture of how work feels. And, man, now we're serving one another, we're caring for one another, and it's not all about competition and who's got more, but, like, man, how can we all be in this together? I mean, it's a powerful principle. Here's the truth. If you become a 1044 kind of person, your funeral is going to be packed. It will be. And there'll be a line of people waiting to get up to the microphone to talk about how you inspired them. And your grandkids are going to get up, and they're going to say, Grandma was the godliest woman that I ever knew. And Granddad made me want to be a better man by his example. If you become a 1044 kind of person, you will leave a legacy. You won't just live a good life, but you will leave a good legacy. And you will go on and on in in the lives of the people that that you love and that you serve. And, man, your life will be like a drop in the lake that ripples out and affects the eternity of many, many other people. That is the power of being a 1044 person. The problem is we don't want to be a 1044 person. And I know that because I know me. And I'm also married, and I have kids. And I know some of you pretty well. Right? We just, I mean, the thing about following Jesus is it's not complicated. It's just hard, right? Like, like this is not complicated. Like, stop thinking about yourself. Stop being all about you. Stop, blah, 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 right? It's not complicated. It's just really hard to do. And if you've ever tried to do it for a week, here's what you're going to find. Man, it's, your spouse can be hard. And your kids can be hard. And your coworkers can be hard. And your classmates can be hard. And your neighbors can be hard. And people in traffic can be hard. And, like, all these things are hard, and, and we don't want to serve. And we're exhausted, and we feel like, I'm just barely kind of keeping myself afloat. Where do I get the energy and the motivation to serve other people? Man, where do I get the power to be a 1044 kind of person that leaves a lasting legacy? And the answer is that you get it by looking upon your 1045 Savior. You see, if you want to become a 1044 person, you've got to go one more verse further, and you've got to look on and meditate on and be awestruck by your 1045 Savior. Here's the most important verse in the entire gospel of Mark. Here it is, Mark 1045. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If you underline in your Bible, if you've got one of those old school real Bibles, man, underline, circle, ransom. Or if you have a phone, highlight that whole verse. Son of Man uh, was Jesus' favorite title for himself. He uses it about himself all the time in the scriptures. And it is a reference to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7 says that the Son of Man will be a figure who comes into history with unparalleled power and authority. Jesus says, that's who I am. If if there's ever a figure in history who was entitled to service, who was entitled to other people bowing down and serving him, it is the Son of Man. And Jesus said, I am that figure. I spoke the cosmos into existence. And yet I did not come to be served. But instead, I came to serve. I came to lay down my rights. I came to forfeit my personal autonomy, comfort, and convenience. I came to lay down my very life as a ransom for many. The word ransom is the key word. Three times in in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has told us that he would die. This is the first time that he tells us why he's going to die. He's going to die as a ransom for many. What's a ransom? Well, ransom is a payment required for the release of a prisoner. A ransom is a payment required for the release of a prisoner. So here's what Jesus is saying. We're prisoners, and he came to rescue us. We're prisoners, and he came to rescue us. So during the Cold War, uh, the USSR constructed an 866-mile wall that prevented their citizens from fleeing their kingdom into the kingdoms of the West. 
right? This wall was made of long, continuous, high metal. It had barbed wires. It had watchtowers. It had, it had minefields. It had anti-vehicle ditches. I mean, it was an incredible structure. And experts say that only 1% of people who tried to escape, who tried to cross that wall, made it. The other 99% were captured, imprisoned, tortured, and often executed. Why? Because they were trying to change their allegiance. They were trying to change their allegiance from the kingdom of the USSR to the kingdom of the West. The USSR wasn't going to have that. It was virtually impossible to escape. I mean, you couldn't get out. 99% of people ended up imprisoned, tortured, or executed. But there was one way that you could get out. You see, a secret ransom program developed between the East and the West. The USSR set a ransom price for dis- different classes of citizens. So, if, you know, if you were a farmer, it was this. If you were a, you know, a merchant, it was that. If you were a doctor, it was this. And if there was someone in the West who was willing to pay your ransom, who was willing to pay your price, man, you were free to go. You could walk up to that wall. The gates would open. No one would shoot you. The mines wouldn't go off. And you could walk right over into a whole new kingdom and pledge your allegiance to a whole new king. You see, you couldn't escape, but you could be ransomed. You couldn't escape, but you could be ransomed. That is my spiritual story. That is my spiritual story. My sin and my rebellion against God have created a wall between me and God called God's judgment. And it is higher and wider and stronger than the Soviet wall. And the prince who ruled over me was much more insidious and malicious than the USSR, the prince of the power of the air, Satan, the deceiver, the accuser of the brethren. And guys, no matter how hard I tried, I could not climb that wall. I couldn't cleanse myself of my guilt. I couldn't purify my heart of my sin. And I grew up in church. I had a lot of church in me. I had a religion in me. But guys, here's here's where I had to come in my life. I had to realize that I was much worse off than I wanted to admit. You see, I wanted to believe that I was a good person who needed a little coaching. I didn't realize I was behind the wall and there was no escape. And it was the moment that I realized that, that my life changed and that I was saved. Can I ask you real candidly, have you realized that you are not a good person in need of coaching, but that you are a sinner in need of a savior? And have you realized that you are on the other side of the wall of God's judgment and there is nothing that you can do to save yourself? That you're, you're not a person who occasionally has moral lapses, but self-interest and self-concern run to your very core? I know we don't like to think of ourselves as sinners. I don't. You probably don't. This might be the thing you don't like about these kinds of churches. You know, the ones that get up here and preach the Bible. You're like, oh, here we go again. Right? I get it. I don't like it either. But let me just, let me try to suggest this to you. Number one, it's very clear in the Bible. So if we're going to submit to God's word, it's just like in there. Okay? So we, that's a whole separate issue. But, like, I just feel like the evidence is overwhelming, isn't it? So imagine with me for a moment that um, you were born with an invisible iPhone around your neck. And you're like, well, there's my problem. It should be a Samsung, right? It's like, it's an iPhone. I'm sorry. Okay, so it's an iPhone around your neck. And every time that you made a moral judgment about someone else, the iPhone would just turn on and record it, whether you said it out loud or you just thought it in, in your mind. My boss shouldn't speak like that to me. My friend ought to lose weight. My kids ought to be more obedient. My neighbor should be more considerate. My husband should be more patient. My coworker should work harder, et cetera, et cetera. Well, by the end of your life, I mean, the phone would have recorded thousands and thousands of these judgments, right? 
thousands and thousands of things that, that you feel like your student should have done or your other teacher should have done or the administrator should have done and just on and on and on and on. We could probably just do the same thing by taking your Facebook feed, okay? Um, it's just like all the things that you feel like other people should do and I feel like other people should do. Now, imagine you come to that great moment that we're all going to come to when you stand before God in judgment. And God, God takes off the iPhone and he just hits play on what you said other people should do. And there's thousands and thousands of moral judgments that you've passed against other people. And then, you know, take a while to play it all. And then at the end, what if God just looked at you and said, how well do you live up to your own standard of righteousness? How well, not my standard, not the Bible. We'll get there in a second. But how well do you just live up to your own standards? And if you're anything like me, the answer is not well. Friends, if we don't measure up to our own standard, how much less do we measure up to the perfect holy standard of God? If we are good people who occasionally make mistakes, then why do we keep making them? If, if I'm a good person at my core, why am I addicted to comfort and to convenience and to entertainment? Why don't I care more about the poor? Why is your marriage full of bitterness? Why is your heart full of lust? Why aren't I more generous with my time and money? Why am I full of pride over the few good things that I do? As the evidence just points to a conclusion that I am not a mistaker in need of a life coach, I am a sinner in need of a savior. And that is what Jesus Christ came to do. Jesus Christ came to be my ransom. You see, when Jesus used that word ransom, he held together two complementary truths of the scriptures. And here they are. Number one, you are intrinsically valuable to God. God knit you together in your mother's womb. God loves you. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. God created you on purpose and with a purpose. That's why Jesus came, for God so loved the world that he came. But the second truth is this. You are more profoundly flawed than you want to admit, and I am more profoundly sinful than I want to admit. Because if it was simply a matter of cleaning up my moral life, then I could get out on my own. But ransom means I can't get out. The wall is too high. The division is too great. I need someone to come and save me. And that is what Jesus came to do. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That is the heart of Christianity. That on the cross, Jesus Christ traded places with me. That on the cross, Jesus Christ took my cup and he drank my judgment so that I could be forgiven. You see, I've told you before that Christianity is not an escape religion. It is a rescue religion. See, every other religion says, man, say your prayers, do your deeds, go to church, and you'll escape judgment. I mean, that's Mormonism, Islam, Hinduism, every variant of religion is that. And Christianity comes along and says, friends, you could never escape, but you can be rescued. You're so precious to the Lord that he sent his one and only son to give his life as a ransom for you. I love how John Stott put it. The concept of substitution or ransom lies at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. While the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. When I grasp what Jesus has done for me, it changes how I relate to other people. Rather than being like James and John seeking my own glory, man, I become a 1044 person as I meditate on my 1045 statement. And the slogan of my life becomes, as Christ has done for me, now I will do for others. So how do you need to respond today? How do you need to respond to the ransom price that Christ has paid? 
Maybe you need to tell someone. Maybe you need to tell someone that they have been ransomed. That no matter who they are or what they've done, they can be forgiven. You know what's sad? There were people in the USSR who had been ransomed and didn't know it. They never crossed the wall because no one ever told them. Friends, that's why we're commanded to go out into the the world with the good news of Jesus Christ. To go out and say, guys, the ransom's been paid. You don't have to live in this kingdom anymore. You can leave this kingdom and you can come into the kingdom of your creator and your father. Maybe you need to tell someone. Maybe in response to your 1045 savior, you need to just resolve yourself to becoming a 1044 person. Maybe you need to go to your spouse and apologize after serving and just say, hey, I'm sorry, I've been serving myself, my marriage. Maybe you need to apologize to a coworker. And I've just been looking after me and my interests. I haven't been thinking of you. Maybe you need to apologize to your children. And you just need to have a new resolve to say, I don't want to just live an easy life. I want to leave a good legacy. And that's going to start with me and laying down my life and seeking the interests of others like Christ laid his life down and sought my interests. Or maybe you need to, maybe you need to walk through the wall yourself. Maybe you're here today and, and you know that Jesus has paid the ransom. Or you know now but you're hesitant. And you're hesitant because your whole life's been lived over there and all your friends are over there. And there, there's some habits and there's some behaviors that, man, you kind of rely on that you know you can't bring with you into this new kingdom. So you hear the good news that you can cross the wall and you can pledge your allegiance to a new kingdom, but you're not sure if you want to do it. And just be really honest, there is a turning away when you become a follower of Christ. You do turn away from some things and you turn towards others. You say no to yet something so that you can say yes to better things. You'll have to leave some things behind. But what you gain is so much better. You gain the forgiveness of your sin, the acceptance of God, the family of the church, the power of the Holy Spirit, the thrill of participating in God's mission, and the promise of eternal life. If Jesus was willing to shed his blood to be your ransom, then you can trust that he has good things prepared for you in his kingdom. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord Jesus, thank you for being my ransom. Thank you for coming not to be served, but to serve and to give your life up so that we might have hope. And Lord, I pray that just across this room, you would lead us how to respond. Maybe that's telling someone that you have ransomed them and they can go free. Maybe that's pledging ourselves to be a 1044 kind of person. Maybe that's crossing that wall today. But I praise your name. I just ask that you move in this place in a powerful way that we might accurately reflect you to the world and glorify you in our lives.